Okay, hi and welcome to this audio commentary on Shame, the 2011 movie directed by Steve McQueen. My name's Rob Caravaggio, robcaravaggio.blogspot.com, and if you'd like to synchronize your copy of the movie to this audio commentary, we'll give you a countdown in just a moment that will help you do that. In the meantime, locate the very beginning of the movie. There's a Fox Searchlight Pictures uh, logo or title screen that comes just before the start of the movie. We're going to use that as a sync point, and it doesn't fade to black, it fades to sort of white. Uh, One of the Fox Search lights um, shoots toward the camera and makes, uh, for about less than a second probably, makes the whole screen white. So just after that Fox Search light pictures logo uh, makes the whole screen white, hit pause so that you've got a whole white screen there and that will allow us to all hit play together and watch the movie in perfect synchronized harmony all right if you're all synced up let's all hit play together in five seconds four three two one play Here we're going to be seeing, um, yeah, there you go. The uh, I, at least on my DVD, I'm seeing the UK Film Council uh, credit. Uh, six and a half million, I think, was the budget, McQueen's budget for this movie, and uh, I think it, a lot of it was from Britain. McQueen is uh, British, and I'll be saying more about him as we go forward into the movie. The opening shot here has that face that Fazbender will be giving us throughout the movie, that blank stare, that uh, very mysterious stare, very intense, but sort of at the same time distracted. The way he was laying there, he just got up. Uh, The way he was laying there with his uh, sort of arm like that, it's almost like, uh, or I think the idea... That McQueen's going for is that it's almost as if he could have a needle in his arm. I won't be going into the um, the construction that um, it's not um, subscribed to by all clinicians, but the construction that um, sex addiction is an addiction like substance addiction. Um, I think there are, you know, there, there's not a physical dependency. It's a different. It's different in a lot of ways to say the least, but it's, it's, it is similar in a lot of ways. I mean, the movie sort of accepts that construction, so that first image of him with the arm, I, I think I say he, he could have a needle in his arm. Uh, uh, the movie sort of looks upon um, the predicament of Brandon as a sex addict, as uh, being exactly like uh, that of an alcoholic or a heroin addict. It's Sort of like the lost weekend, but with fucking. <laughs> There's the first dick shot of uh, Fazbender. And what McQueen is doing here in the opening scenes um, is he's introducing us to the uh, 
routine of Brandon. Um, it doesn't have a, a typical plot structure, and you could say that Brandon isn't really any different at the end of the movie than he was at the beginning. He doesn't really have a, a traditional arc. But that's sometimes common in stories about um, addiction, uh, especially tragic ones. Uh, we're being introduced to his routine here with this cross-cutting, and, and um, McQueen is playing with time a little bit here at the beginning of the movie. We've already been introduced to the redhead on the, on the train. Uh, of course, that will, will bookend the movie. Uh, we'll have that scene at the end to kind of give the movie a bookend. But Brandon is a... I'll speak more about his identity probably later on, but I feel like he's a character that is being pulled between uh, two different identities. Uh, there he is in that position again, uh, laying there, uh, sort of with the arm out, with that blank look. It's not a look of, of sexual arousal, it's just a the look of someone getting a fix, you might say. So the sort of playing with time that I, that I mentioned here, McQueen's going back and forth in time and, and showing, introducing us to his routine because as a nine-to-fiver at, um, we never really learn what the company does, uh, Brandon's company, but as a kind of nine-to-fiver, uh, a so-called yuppie, an urban guy, he has this one identity as sort of a, a normal person who works an office job and... Uh, a trendy area of Manhattan, uh, lower Manhattan, uh, pretty much, I think. Oh, no, we see Madison Square Garden a little bit, so it's a little bit... Uh, well, never mind. Forget New York. There's our second dick shot. But his routine is is uh, important because the movie is going to be about what happens when his routine is interrupted. It seems like a pretty normal routine. Wakes up, goes to work, um, lives in this sort of unassuming apartment, we even have this shot of him taking a piss, right? Just a normal routine, but intercut with all this, of course, there are images of him with the prostitute. Him, uh, I think we'll have an image of him looking at computer porn. Um, images of him, uh, the, the first image of the movie is a post, post-coital image of him uh, just after sex. And of course, that, that look he has on his face is not, not the look of someone who's sexually aroused or, or excited, really, but it's sort of... Uh, he, the idea, I think, is that he, and they say this about uh, sex addicts, that they, in a sense, they sometimes don't get pleasure in the way uh, people who don't have that, that problem get pleasure. And so I think we're seeing that. And then, of course, uh, red-blooded males routine wouldn't be complete without this image of masturbation. <laughs> And it's great that it's in the in the shower because the shower is gonna gonna figure in later on, of course. And all of the sort of associations that showers, you know, he's sort of he's it looks like more like self-flagellation than self-pleasure when he does it. And it, the associations we have with showers in movies with Psycho, you know, and um, it, it kind of vaguely recalls Psycho when he walks in on Sissy in the scene later on when Carrie Mulligan makes her appearance. The actress here is uh, Lucy Walters, uh, the redheaded actress who plays. They're obviously shooting on a real, a real 
subway line here in New York. She's very good at that sort of, um, you know, she's married, but she's very flattered. And I mentioned to somebody um, when I went to a screening of Shame um, that, you know, what Fassbender's doing here, and he'll do it again in the movie, I think a couple times, is his method of flirting uh, is basically what you see here, just staring with a with a sort of serious... I like what McQueen does here, by the way. We, get, we have his... Brandon's point of view, we have the looking at the legs here, and the camera's going to pan up because it's his point of view, and she's clocking him as he's clocking her. Very nice. And in the frame, we have even a little bit of this guy sitting next to her. I think this um, stuff on the subway, and a lot of the movies sort of capture, well, this whole thing with the, the married woman on the subway... Yeah, see, I like I like how we have that guy next to her in the frame because it just the mundaneness of going to work and you know this guy has no idea he's just he probably didn't get enough sleep and you know just before she got up he if you rewind it you'll see he he kind of looked at the camera a little bit that extra <laughs> these might be real commuters for all we know and this will be the scene that of course uh, bookends the movie at the end but. What I was going to say is that the the urban task of going to work every day on public transit, and uh, you, you, I think this captures it very well. You, you sort of, um, boy, this was a one uh when she from the time she got up. This has been a one a one take where we we track him off the subway car and then up the stairs. Very nicely done. You see how close he is to there, and then we kind of lose her at the moment he does, but it's kind of hard to believe. I mean, you have to accept it for the sake of a movie, but it's kind of hard to believe that he wouldn't have found her or, or that he could lose her that easily when he was that close. But yeah, just the mundane thing of going to work in an urban public transit. You really do see, you know, you go to work every day at 7.50 or whatever, and you see the same people on the train or the bus or whatever and develop these wordless relationships. And, at, of course, at the end of the movie, she'll be kind of done up a little bit prettier or, you know, she'll appear to have had her hair done or she'll, she'll have her hair down. Maybe she wants to look pretty for him. That whole opening um, few minutes of the movie with the uh, cross-cutting and uh, the playing with time, the music that was sort of playing underneath that really held it all together and, and set the sort of mood of the movie. The music was done by uh, Harry Escott, and of course there'll be um, sort of source music and, and other um, pieces by Bach and, and Coltrane in the movie, uh, and I'll sort of point them out. So he has this kind of blank stare in that meeting too, as we're and that meeting nicely. Um, the movie's pretty pretty good at at sort of the way it introduces us to characters. I, I like the way each character is kind of brought into the story. Like that first time we see his boss and sort of buddy David there. Um, he's giving this sort of stupid kind of corporate speech, and uh, it's sort of a great introduction to the, you know, where he's saying a lot but not saying anything, and it's sort of a douchey, you know, he's a douchey character, and um, James Badge Dale is the name of the actor here, and uh, I'd never seen him in anything, to my knowledge, and he he, uh, he kind of blows me away, because it's real easy for um if they cast that part wrong, you could have someone going over the top and going for laughs, and that's that's not the movie McQueen's trying to make here. And so 
I mean, the, the point of that character is that he's over the top, but I think uh, Mr. Dale gets it just right. McQueen makes a lot of um, choices that are a little bit different than some other filmmakers might make, like this uh, choice of shooting the bathroom stall of uh, Brandon masturbating in the bathroom, bathroom stall. Um, I love this little bit of business here. Opening the door for the woman with the child, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, like he shot him from overhead there. And I, I feel like, uh, just to, in case you don't know anything about McQueen, he made one movie before this, also a collaboration with Fassbender. Uh, it was called Hunger, and it was very, very good. And I, I really loved Michael Fassbender in that movie. A very intense movie. And his next movie, uh, after Shame, uh, his, the movie he's making now is called um, 12 Years a Slave. It will also star Fazbender. McQueen was a visual artist, as, as we watch Brandon here, um, surfing the internet porn uh, in the essence of bachelordom. And, of course, this whole time throughout the beginning of the movie, the, the cross-cutting, and now um, I think again here we'll get... Uh, we're hearing um, as he's walking naked back and forth before we had those messages from Sissy. Um, and we figure, you know, the first time you see the movie, you figure Sissy is a uh, on-again, off-again girlfriend or something, uh, a romantic interest. And so when we find out, and it's a good, you know, she's on screen for a long time before we, we realize it's his sister or before Brandon sort of casually drops the reveal, uh, drops the piece of information in there uh, that it's a sister and um and then all the stuff that that's happened sort of we have to remember it in a different way and I, I like that the movie does that that moment that just passed there where he's leaving the building when he went in the night before of course the woman was the old woman was coming out with a little child in a buggy this is kind of a flash forward here to the later hotel room scene that he'll have with Marianne but anyway I like and then the next morning when he walks out of his building uh a young woman's walking in, and of course, you know, what movie about urban sex addiction would be complete without a, a scene of, you know, it's almost like McQueen couldn't resist putting that scene in there of him, uh, Brandon, looking at a woman's ass as she walked by. It's... So the douchiness of David there um, with that stupid fucking hoodie underneath the blazer, the idea is I think that, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's got a little bit of gray hair and not too much, you know, he, we never learn what this company does, but the, you know, this, and we'll hear later that he'll say that Brandon killed it at this meeting. He'll say it here, but, um, or he says it to the women that they hit on, but the idea is they're this young kind of trendy company and they're trying to maybe get investors or something. And I really think the David character is sort of the quintessence of, uh, that kind of, um, hey, we're not really corporate. We, we, you know, we've got a hoodie underneath our jacket. You know, look how cool we are. Brandon not even wearing a tie, you know, that sort of thing. So if you weren't convinced that uh, the David character was a douchebag before, um, this exchange with uh, these women and, and, um, the uh, woman with the blonde hair, Elizabeth, will convince you of it. Actress here, uh, 
It's a very, very nice Italian name, uh, Elizabeth Masucci, or Masucci. Masucci is how you would accent it. Not to believe I've seen her in anything, but um, she sort of has the Kim Novak outfit from Vertigo on, the gray sort of business attire, a gray suit, but I, I think she's wearing a skirt. Um, and the two women who play her friends are, are pretty good there. Now, Brandon, you know, wasn't called over. He comes up uh, on his own, but he, he plays it cool here. And he, he, you know, because he kind of, I mean, the whole idea is there is that he's kind of two-faced, right? Like, Brandon has no idea, that, well, he's seen the porn on his computer, but he has no idea that Brandon's a sex addict. Uh, David has no idea, that, you know, so he's, his identity by day is like this unassuming guy who, who isn't, I mean, you figure he'd be the guy who's really flirtatious and trying too hard the way douchebag David is. But in fact, he's the guy who plays it cool. And perhaps there's a lesson in here for men, uh, you know, if you play it cool, you, you'll, You'll be the guy who gets the girl. Of course, it helps when you look like uh, Michael Fassbender. <laughs> yeah, I think that might help a little bit. Um, like that scene where he's staring at the woman on the train, and, and, and there'll be that other scene with Marianne later on where he's just staring at her, and that's sort of his way of flirting. You can get away with that fucking shit if you are... Uh, that good looking. And you see uh, Elizabeth here eyeing Fazbender as she's dancing with David. And the friends here who are... I, I hate saying stuff like this, but I mean, I think the, the point of the casting here is that they're, 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 they're perfectly beautiful uh, women, those other two women, but they're not as tall, not as blonde, not as perhaps striking as Elizabeth. And so when one of them asks Brandon to dance, he, he says no politely, but he's sitting there or standing here staring at uh, Elizabeth and uh, David uh, David acting uh, ridiculous, making a fool of himself. And then they spill out into the bar here. Um, and the music that was playing there, um, I, I feel like all the music in this movie was really, um, really creates this foreboding mood, but uh, it's a foreboding by way of melancholy, and I think, uh, again, I think that captures Manhattan. Even this bar they just piled out of and, or, or um, uh, spilled out of, um, that kind of yuppie after-work crowd um, in lower Manhattan. I mean, you see, I mean, it's exactly like that with the way a guy with a hoodie under his blazer would hit on a girl at a bar. It's, it's just, if you've never been to Manhattan at quitting time, uh, um, seen some of these bars, uh, I mean, the movie just gets it right. That's exactly what you see. And so we have the, the fact that she was eyeing him is, is sort of nicely paid off here. It's interesting that the, f it's not the first sexual encounter we see him in, but it's interesting that when he sort of, in a weird way, cuckolds David here. Um, it's not something he's trying to do. It's uh, she initiates. He was he was walking home. The whole thing with the eyes, where he guessed her eye color um, at the bar. I feel like uh, my I, I like to think like it, he had them. He saw them. He saw those women before even David did. He had her clocked 
the whole way. So he probably... And the other thing, it's, you know, if you know anybody who does magic or, or if you've ever seen them, if you know how psychics uh, uh, kind of um, fool people, uh, there's something called cold reading. And I, I think he said her eyes were brown or something, whatever color they were. I mean, if you see someone of a certain um, race or, or hair color, um, you it, it's pretty easy to guess and get it right a good amount of the time what their eye color is if you just guess um i think like the majority of people have brown eyes anyway like on planet earth the majority of people and so so it's not um you know it's the kind of thing where somebody could guess too it's one of those things that the movie leaves ambiguous and uh, leaves nicely ambiguous i i would say yeah so mcqueen a very interesting guy who's a visual artist as we see brandon uh, gonna take out this intruder, and I think he's sort of has that Orson Welles uh, thing going on, where Orson Welles, you know, Greg Tolan famously, uh, the cinematographer who shot Citizen Kane, f- famously told Orson Welles, "I want to work with you because you don't know what you can't do." Because Welles had been in the theater and radio, had never really made a movie. And I think McQueen has some of that too. He he was a very successful visual artist before he gotten a cinematography and directing and i like the sensibility it's it's um kubrick had that too you know just a it's a little bit different than what maybe someone who went to film school would do sometimes i i think he is a little too cute um and maybe i'll point out some of those times but like here's a, a mirror a use of the mirror right as we see um carrie mulligan uh, in all her uh, splendor Like, this is a cool use of um, a mirror because it's 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 used as a reveal. And, and it, it the fact that we're seeing her in a reflection like that is beautifully blocked, by the way. Um, this has all been one shot, you know. The fact that we're seeing her in reflection, I think, helps to create that sense of disorientation uh, that Brandon is experiencing at that time. And we still don't know that it's the sister. So when we learn that it's a sister we will think back to this scene and realize that she wasn't really attempting very much to cover up uh, herself. I mean, if I walked in my sister in the shower, I wouldn't stand there looking at my naked sister. And that's just me, right? No, that's pretty much everybody, I think. And um, that sort of weirdness, I I like how the movie asks us to consider that weirdness in retrospect. You see him here smelling that what is that, a boa? They call those boas? Uh, her scarf, at any rate. But yeah, and he wasn't really trying to evacuate the bathroom either, was he? Um, when he saw that it was his sister and, and she was naked. Um, and so that sexual tension between them is something that we never learn exactly what went on, but I actually have my own theory that I choose to believe because, you know, the movie invites us to interpret it, uh, you know, leaves a lot of room for us to use our own imagination. And so I'll, I'll probably explain that uh, later on when uh, we have a couple big scenes with Sissy. But at this point, it, yeah, see, like here, like the bathroom reveal with the mirror shot, you, that use of a, a mirror, you know, it's like such a, it's a, such a trope in movies now using mirrors in that way. And 
it's almost a cliche, but but I think that one in the bathroom was really well done. Like I said, it was used as a reveal. It made it disorienting, and it didn't draw attention to itself. Actually, it it was staged in a way where it looked like he was looking. It, he she was. We were looking at her and not a reflection of her, the way it was staged. So it was very nice. Um, but that scene that just passed, um, the whole thing with the refrigerator door blocking Brandon out of the frame is happened already and happens now. I think it'll happen again. But anyway, when she was on the phone pleading with her, um, uh, the guy's name is Mark, we'll hear here. Uh, when she was on the phone there, um, we still uh, we don't know that it's his sister. And so he's overhearing her pleading to some other guy. And at this point, we figure that she's an ex or a love interest or a friends with benefits kind of thing. And this whole rapport that they had, and and really, it's it's um, the performances really sell it, sell the nuance of it. Um, what I mean is, the rapport they have in this kitchen scene is simultaneously brother and sisterly, um, and, and at the same time, it is romantic or quasi-romantic, like the way. Well, first of all, the way that she's half naked here. I mean, the, these bedclothes that she's wearing. She doesn't have a doesn't appear to have a bra on. Um, not that I was looking, and um, she appears to be, you know, in underwear, and you know, the the shirt is falling off her. You know, I, I've actually had my sister and her kids and her husband. Um, uh, stay over at my place. Of you know, their house was being fumigated or something like that. Um, and you know, she didn't walk around half naked, um, cause it's weird, but if it's your girlfriend, it's not weird. So we think, so the whole, but, but at the same, so, so the way she was hugging him from behind, um, is sort of romantic, like quasi romantic, but at the same time, the way they were, um, the way he was becoming annoyed with her, the way they were, um, joshing each other very brother and sisterly so at the same time they have this and it's it's true to the characters and and true to what you know whatever their past is and again i'll i'll give you my theory later on uh, whatever happened between these two um it their relationship would be like that like this little thing that was on him and she picks it off and he's gonna put her hat on in a, in a moment Yeah, McQueen does make, um, maybe it's his past as a visual artist. Maybe he's just like Kubrick, you know, maybe he's just a special kind of director. But uh, like this whole one here on the subway platform, he, um, I like the way that's lit in the background there. Um, it looks like just the way it's normally lit until the train comes and everything gets a little brighter. But like he shoots them from behind here and this... Uh, It'll be like a scene that we have later on where they're on a couch watching a cartoon and, and the whole conversation will be shot from behind. And when they look at each other, as the conversation gets more intense, um, they'll start to look at each other more and we'll start to get them in full profile, both of them in full profile. So, and there, you know, my instincts would, you know, I I would think you'd want to see the, the actors' faces. 
uh, <laughs> in a dialogue scene, but but we do. He, you know, we get them in profile in that other scene, and and there we don't get it. We don't get their faces so much, but it's um, it's sort of a shorter scene anyway. So the sleek, uh, oh, and the weird intimacy of this little coffee nook, this little coffee room. He slaps him on the ass there. And uh, the the dialogue point of the dialogue here is is that David is sort of may or may not be hip to the fact that maybe he saw Brandon getting that girl's car or something. Um, but yeah, this this um coffee space will have this weird these weird intimacy moments like his boss just slapped him on the ass there. Oh, that douchey turtleneck! And we I love how the Marianne's in the background there. Um, and later on, Marianne will, uh, they'll have a, some moments of intimacy there too. We've already set up that he, part of his routine is jerking off in the bathroom. So when we see him, when McQueen shows him walking into the bathroom there, um, that's all we need. This is a movie that really respects your intelligence. And um, it's almost uh, a cliche for someone to, to talk about movies respecting or not respecting the audience's intelligence at this point um, because you hear it so much because so many movies don't but it's the way it is I, I think McQueen um, you know and with with holds just a, the screenplay was written by McQueen and Abby Morgan she is a playwright who who wrote um, uh, the screenplay for the Iron Lady uh, with Meryl Streep and um, and I think they withhold jo- just enough information that to really engage you without annoying you. At least I, I wasn't annoyed. Look at the lighting here, the way it, it just splashes onto Fazbender's face and onto and, and that dark turtleneck that James Badge Dale is wearing. Just that warm, warm light on their faces here. When you're scouting locations for a movie, shooting a movie in New York, if you're scouting locations and you find a place like this, you know, this this looks to be the way this place is probably normally lit. Um, you just can't resist shooting here. So, a lot of people have a problem with um, the whole scene where she sings the whole song and the camera's on her the whole time. Um, or I've heard people sort of, well, people have different reactions to it. I didn't like it as much the first time I saw it, but the more times I've seen the film, it works for me. Um, first of all, people remember it wrong. Um, the camera does not hold on Carrie Mulligan the whole time. We have reaction shots. We we cut to Brandon. We even cut to a two-shot of Brandon and David reacting. And um, as far as character development, this, or, or what you can call character development, again, this is an unorthodox plot, I think it's just awesome that the way Morgan and McQueen have written this scene the effect and we don't know it yet that's the, the, because of what the story is withholding from us we'll know it in a minute when they have the three of them have a conversation but what the story is withholding from us here as she sings New York New York is 
that they're brother and sister. And so they've created this scene where her song will have not the same effect, but will have a similar effect on Brandon and David. The way I interpret the film, they're both attracted to her. Um, Brandon is attracted to her. And um, and that's the problem, right? I mean, if he weren't, it, 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 it he wouldn't be tortured by the relationship as much as he is. The fact that she's singing New York, New York, you know, the lyrics to a song, these vagabond blues, I want to be a part of it. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously it's, I wouldn't say it's totally on the nose, but I mean, obviously it applies to her. She's singing something uh, that's true to her, uh, the character. Uh, this will be a long, I believe this is the longer reaction shot that we have of Fassbender. And of course, if you are someone who pays attention to movies uh, as you watch them, <laughs> uh, if your gears are cranking, you realize that um, the look he has on his face is kind of like the look he had on the subway, kind of like the look he had with the prostitute. So I think the movie also... Um, in the final analysis, uh, earns that that moment there, where the tear streams down his cheek and he and he wipes it away. You see that in so many goddamn movies, and to the point where it it's it often doesn't have an effect on me. But here, it here I think this movie's earned it. Um, you you may do that, <laughs> you know, because you you have to decide for yourself when you've seen the whole movie. You have to decide for yourself why he is crying. You know, the first time you see the movie, you just think he's deeply affected by maybe just seeing her again. And the, and it's uh, Carrie Mulligan's voice, evidently, which is nice. She's, she gives a, a, a quite a, a nice performance. Um, uh, but I'm not a, a real music person. A couple of people I know who are, or one person I know who's sort of a music person, she said that, um, you know, this is just an overly melancholy arrangement of the song. And, well, certainly for the scene they're trying to shoot here, I mean, you don't, you're not going to have an up-tempo version of it, you know, but. This movie was shot on 35, um, just, uh, good old 35 mil and in scenes like this where the lighting is warm and and you've got a somebody in close up here and and the colors are nicely um complementing each other the color of her hair and the, and the color of the the out of focus background things there um or this shot with uh, you know that cityscape behind him and the the light on fastbender's face it's a very handsome film um, I mean, the 35 just, it's just, I mean, there's a, there's an almost Barry Lyndon kind of look to the, it's almost like this really rich candlelight. A lot of the scenes take place in indoor settings where you have big ass Manhattan, you know, Manhattan buildings do this, they, uh, all big cities, I think, have buildings, tall buildings, where you have these big, big windows and a nice view of the cityscape. And I love that um, 
McQueen and his uh, McQueen and uh, Bobbitt, John Bobbitt, his cinematographer, don't make a big deal like so many movies do. Like if this were, I actually like Rob Reiner, but if this were a Rob Reiner romantic comedy, we would have, you know, the cinematography would be making a, or we would get, uh, it would be making a big deal of this, the view. Oh, what a great view. And we were getting the, be getting these postcard shots of the New York cityscape and the cityscape, uh, through the windows and scenes like this is always, always a blur, you know? Um, it, it's always sort of out of focus and not made a big deal of, and, uh, because it's not a big deal to these characters, uh, you know, it's, it's a remarkable thing, but when you, when you live in a, a city like New York, um, the most amazing things about the city are just no, no longer a big deal to you. So this will be paid off later. Um, of course, David here is hitting on Carrie Mulligan, uh, Brandon's sister. We, uh, We've uh, now learned uh, a few minutes ago that this is his sister, and so he is, uh, we've already learned that he's kind of a creep, um, uh, David, but um, he's now hitting on his employees or his, his co-workers, however you want to say it, uh, sister right in front of him uh, to the point of touching her, and, and that, uh, what I was, what, what's going to be paid off later, what I mentioned was going to be paid off later was um, he mentions the scratches on her wrists. And that'll be paid off. Uh, it won't be paid off until the hospital scene, way uh, close to the end. Fazbender, um, you know, this is one of the scenes that really uh, sold me on Fazbender in this movie. Uh, look at the way it's uh, framed there. Um, that scene was about him. I mean, and now he has to put up with this. Um, his sister <laughs> sharing a cab, uh, oh boy. But that, yeah, that scene there, um, because, um, Sissy and David were the ones talking and, and talking rather intimately and sort of hitting it off. But the way it was framed, it was, the scene was about Brandon and, um, Fassbender has to do essentially nothing in, in that he doesn't have any dialogue, but he sort of, he's giving his boss a look and staring him down without really giving him a look because it's his boss and and this awkward scene of him not knowing whether he should go up or not to his own apartment <laughs> the movie has this um, pattern of um, what you might call turnabout is fair play with the earlier scene in the bar Brandon essentially, I think I already said, essentially he cuckolds, uh, or in a way, he cuckolds David. Uh, and now, uh, turn about being fair play, David is cuckolding him with, uh, with uh, his sister, with Brandon's sister. It's really, um, the scene's kind of... Uh, Scenes that have passed in this movie, and, and um, a lot of movies that are well-made will do this, scenes that have passed lend a special kind of resonance to the scene that you're watching. So the scene where he came in and he thought 
the the sister the music was on his uh, sissy was taking a shower he thought there was an intruder the camera kind of tracked him in the same way it was tracking him a moment ago as he walked in and and so now this scene um where we we still don't know what he's going to do as his sister is being banged by uh, his boss in his apartment we don't know what he's about to do here but there's all kinds of tension because the last time the camera was tracking him in a tense moment like this and we didn't know what was going to happen next he had a bat in his hand and he was ready to do something violent this is a great head fake here that the movie does um yeah like all the manipulative stuff the movie does just works for me i mean the the head the fake out here of course is that by now we know he's a sex addict and we think this this stripping that he's doing here is that he's about to join in uh in the, uh, the sexual congress that has commenced in his, his bedroom. But that's a well-timed cut there, I think, because just as we're picking up our jaw from that, we cut to him uh, putting on sweats there. And um, we realize that the, the, the we've been surprised. Another one of the set pieces... It's interesting that he chooses to, to jog for many reasons, obviously, but but um, aside from the, the sort of obvious reasons of you know, blowing off steam and getting out of the apartment, it's just it's jogging for people who jog uh, is a routine, is a matter of routine. And um, the funny thing about being a, a highly um, accomplished nine to five uh, or workaholic uh, or, you know, a highly accomplished business person is that you're a creature of routine and military, you know, highly disciplined people are creatures of routine, but highly undisciplined people are also creatures of routine. Uh, being an addict, um, uh, Fazbender's character, uh, Brandon, is a creature of routine, right? I mean, he's got to have it every day. Uh, he's got to be in that bathroom stall every day. And so it's interesting that he chooses to jog to kind of get, a, do something that is a matter of routine when this something that is way out of the ordinary has set up shop in his apartment. <laughs> some people don't like this um, sort of Rocky Balboa tracking scene of him jogging um, it's another one of those choices that you know I, I see what they mean the The only problem I have with it might be the, the music I think that is a um, some piano aria or something by Bach in E minor um yeah, I don't think the music quite works. I think just just the sounds of the city would be maybe better. But the music does, as I said before, give the movie a, a cool feel, I think. A very foreboding, but just a very cool feel. As you see there, um, he's, uh, I think, well, here I think he would be headed east. Uh, because, forget, forget about, uh, I won't go on and on about New York, but... Um, you notice that he just passed Madison Square Garden there, and uh, I really enjoy that, like I said, with the stuff out the windows, the movie doesn't make a big deal out of the postcards, those postcard shots of landmarks and uh, tourist attractions in New York City. Um, he passed Madison Square Garden right there, but the movie kind of does, doesn't, it, it doesn't, it's not a big deal to the movie, just like it's not a big deal to Brandon. Again, 
um, it, it, I always think about this too as a as a New Yorker. Um, when you live here, the most amazing things are just you don't even have time to make a big deal out of them because you're just living your life like everybody who lives everywhere else. Um, it's probably true of everybody who lives in a remarkable place. When I was in the theater, that genuinely scared me because it's a kind of another mini head fake there too, right? Because we think something's about to happen when she comes in the bedroom and it just the, the scene just goes the other way. So to add insult to injury, his office mate calls him a slacker when it's clearly, uh, it's actually the boss's fault that he's coming in late today. Um, <laughs> it's funny, I never I never thought about it that way. It's not his fault. Normally it would be, right? I think the idea with Sissy is that she's a sex addict too. When they had that first scene in the kitchen, uh, the orange juice scene, um, she's talking about the guy she was talking on the phone with, Mark, and she was telling him, I don't have to go out, I don't have to go, and she's pleading with him, and uh, he tells her, she says that, oh, something about how it's not going well with the guy Mark, and Fazbender's character says, well, what do you expect? And then the scene just goes on, and they don't make, a, but I think they're both sex addicts or have some sort of sexual compulsions where... Um, Maybe that's what he was referring to. So they they both have the same thing. We just, it's never shown outright with Sissy. Or maybe it is. I mean, she jumps into bed with David pretty quick. Once again, if you haven't decided that David's a creep, this thing, this whole thing with his son over Skype, uh, pretty smarmy after he was just, you know, banging some co-worker's sister the night before um <laughs> the whole thing with this porno uh he's got newton's balls on his desk i never saw that this is really well captured too the way um people lie to each other while acknowledging that they're lying kind of um hey somebody's messing with your hard drive okay yeah right you know uh, he's and and also the fact that David kind of feigns not to not to be familiar with the kind of rough pornography that was on there. You know, somehow I find that not believable. Uh what does he say? Um interracial interracial facials. I don't even know what that is. Well, I mean, I can kind of figure out what that is from the And, and his son that he was talking to there, I love how sort of in a corporate way he kind of handles his son, you know, or, or in that sort of fake suave way he handles his son, you know, handles quotation marks, right? Doesn't really connect with him. <laughs> this is great. Again, the, the way he flirts, his eyes follow her back. The line that she said, of course, is, do you like, you like sugar? Yeah, I like, and his method, again, you can get away with that if you look like that. You know, his method of flirting is just blank stare. <laughs> it's pretty good. And this is not a key plot point, but um, just interesting that the thing that presumably makes him a little bit late 
for this date with Marianne is that um, he stops uh, to gawk. That's a nice New York shot right there behind him. Um, he stops to gawk at the hotel or this building where this people are having sex against the window. <laughs> and again, you know, this so the whole thing with Marianne, uh, later they'll be at a hotel and you'll have a sort of reenacting of, of what was going on in that window, but under under very different circumstances. So this would be a oneer. Um, this is probably my um, favorite scene in the movie, and when I was talking to people about it, and they have people have all kinds of problems with this scene. They, I think they don't like that it's a oneer. They, um, they say, "Oh, what was with the waiter? What you know? What was that supposed to be funny?" And I thought. You know, and maybe this is, um, <laughs> the waiter is just so awkward and it's just, so I'll give you my take on it. Um, the waiter, I think, well, I think McQueen, maybe because he was a visual artist, has maybe a more acute sense for the surreal than maybe other filmmakers might have. And this is a very bizarre, surreal thing. This waiter, and it's also very realistic, this waiter who, you know, what's going on here? Is it his first night or something? Or he's just kind of awkward and there's something off about him. But this happens when you go out sometimes. Um, and I like the way that the awkwardness of the waiter kind of becomes this weird Thing, and nobody states it explicitly, but it's the subtext. It's this weird thing that adds a secondary tension to this scene that's already pretty tense. It's a first date, and um, they actually sort of lock horns a little bit in their conversation and um, realize that they're actually pretty different in terms of worldview on relationships. But it uh, the way, and of course, this guy pouring the water, this other waiter, um, busboy, perhaps, uh, does his job perfectly. You know, he's he's he can pour water without being awkward, but not this other guy. So, but uh, anyway, in addition to uh, adding that secondary tension, I feel like the awkwardness of the waiter makes a team of Marianne and. Brandon. All of a sudden, they're allies, um, not battling something, but just allies and trying to figure out what the fuck is going on with this waiter. But they can't, while he's standing, you know, they're not going to say, geez, what the fuck's wrong with this guy? You know, it, the waiter's not doing anything outrageous. He's just kind of a little bit <laughs> like that, you know, just that, just a little bit, uh, awkward silences and like he like he doesn't know or like he's waiting for you to say something when he's the waiter you know he should be the one soliciting 
<laughs> I love that you can tell he's he's not he doesn't appear to be writing anything. He just appears to be scribbling on that pad. Oh, that's that's the other thing with this. I don't know if I mentioned Marianne's um the character Marianne is played by an act, actor named Nicole Bahari and I read that um I don't know if they still are a couple, but I read that that's Fazbender's real life girlfriend. Uh, I think after the movie was shot, they began to date. Um, but that's just something I read. So that's an, it'll be interesting when they have that sex scene or that um, near sex scene, <laughs> like a near death experience, a near sex experience, um, because they before he um, can't get it up. There's there's sort of really, really sort of. Um, <laughs> really good, uh, I hate to use the word chemistry, Jesus, but, um, you know, they're really cooking there. Oh, it's listed, um, on IMDb as a goof. You know, they, how they list the goofs. But I don't think it's a, I don't think it's necessarily a goof. Uh, uh if you hear the dialogue, Brandon has, uh, and Marianne have ordered a, a red wine. They've ordered a Pinot. And uh, uh, the goof on IMDb says that Pinot comes in a very particular shaped bottle. You know, different wines come in different shaped bottles sometimes. And um, the bottle that this waiter brings is clearly not a Pinot bottle. It is um, not that shape, and it wouldn't be a Pinot. And he uncorks it right there, so it wouldn't be a Pinot in that bottle. I don't think that's necessarily like a... A script supervisor thing, you know. I don't think that's necessarily a continuity thing. Um, I think that that could be a very subtle uh, thing that maybe McQueen uh, did on purpose. You know, the, I mean, obviously they're making a thing of this waiter being awkward and kind of. Um, again, he's not inept. He's not doing anything outrageous. He's just a little awkward. Uh, she's very good here as she gets annoyed with him with that incredulous look, like. She almost like she can't believe she's having the conversation that she's having, um, and the way and the way Fazbender jokes here, there, here he's pouring the wine now. That's not a Pinot bottle, but I think that's the joke. I think that this guy's you know <laughs> this guy's a fuck up maybe. I don't know if she she said it yet or um. She's going to say it, but she says, well, why are you here? You know, because they're talking about commitment in this scene. And the, the point of the scene is that these two get along and they might make, and they're certainly a handsome looking couple. And they, uh, they hit it off and this appears to be someone, Brandon, the sex addict, who um, doesn't do relationships longer than a couple months, according to what he tells her in that scene. This is the scene where he really starts to like someone in a what you might call a healthy, balanced way. And <laughs> that's very funny. And they're a little and they start off a little bit on the wrong foot, but they still get along great. Like she still puts up with him. And again, you know, I, I hate to keep harping on this, but you know, she says, um, well, why are you here then? If you know, because they're talking about commitment and he's not big on commitment. So, well, why are you here? And he says, Well, I hear the food is terrific. And he laughs at his own joke his own insensitive joke, not, not the kind of thing to do on a first date. And she, she's clearly annoyed by it, but she puts up with it. And, and now you have this scene where they're actually 
getting along nicely. It's a nice one or two. Like, these are nice New York shots. Like, these aren't postcards. These aren't landmarks. It's just a nice shot of a, of a boulevard, you know? Um, but, yeah, uh, so they go, so they say so they lock horns a little bit, but, but she's getting along, and now you have this really good chemistry with them, so it looks promising. Um uh, for Brandon, but I, I, what I was going to say is I hate to keep harping on it, but, um, the way he laughed at his own joke and, uh, the way he fucked with her there with that, that growling joke that he did where he scares her. Um, I'm sorry, but you, you can get away with that shit if you look like Michael Fassbender. Um, the rest of us better have some fucking manners, you know? So it, in a way, it, it's one of those ways that movies teach us um, to be too confident, <laughs> you should not, you should not be as confident as Fastbender. I don't know what the, I, I mean, I, I understand in terms of colors, why the wardrobe would, his wardrobe would be that way, but, um, that scarf he's wearing just seems, it's distracting to me. I don't. I don't usually fixate on things like that, but I'm just saying. So that's a real uh, uh, Delancey Street station. I mean, that's a real subway in New York. If in case you didn't know, and it's a real line. Um, I think it wasn't at a screening. It was just I was with people and we were talking about the movie, and uh, somebody said that. He's an asshole for, you know, why doesn't he ride the train with her? It's nighttime to be safe, or why doesn't he walk her home? And um, and I said, where are you from? And it turned out that this person was, he was from um, more of a rural place. And I said, uh, no, no, I mean, you have to understand the mores of New York and other big towns, I'm sure. Look, if she lives two boroughs away and it's a work night, um, she can ride the subway by herself. She rides the subway every day. And, well, my point is that it's it's not seen as rude in, in for New Yorkers to, to do that, to, to not take a date all the way home because, I mean, I think it would be rude for her to ask him to because if she, I mean, if she really lives like, in Connecticut or something, you know, she's getting on two trains or something. I mean, no, sorry. Again, the masturbation looks like self-flagellation. So he walked in on her. Now she has walked in on him. Again, the turnabout is fair play thing. This is a genuinely weird... Carrie Mulligan is very good here. And she's obviously... I, I think she's one of the best screen performers, young screen performers out there. I mean, she, she's not even 30 yet, I think. Yeah, she's just very good there. Later, he'll tell her that you trap me. You come here and you trap me. And he was, 
you know, obviously there was a perhaps in child. I mean, she'll say the the big line that she has in the movie is, um, "We're not bad," or I think it's a, in a phone message that she leaves him. Um, We're not bad people. We just come from a bad place. Obviously, I mean, my theory is basically, you know, obviously there was an incest thing. Perhaps, I mean, it's not a subject that people relish talking about, uh, most people anyway, but um, it it is a real thing that happens. Uh, Incest is not, you know something that happens by accident sometime. It doesn't always happen by accident or via rape or something. Um, incest, you know, there there are people who fall in love with their siblings or become lovers with their siblings, or uh, sometimes it's at a, um, perhaps a disturbingly young age, and that's what you might have here. Um, I think there are little hints that it might have been at a young age, and maybe even continued. And that's why he's trying to stay away from her. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my theory is basically that they were lovers of a kind. or And that he, um, as disturbing as his life is with the sex addiction, he doesn't want her around to really send him off the rails. So not only is he throwing out porn, but he's throwing out what appeared to be ravioli there too on the computer. So people don't, um, some people don't understand that scene. Um, but again, the movie's conceit is in part that um, his addiction to sex is no different than um, alcoholism or some other addiction. And so you see that sometimes um, addicts or alcoholics will just throw out everything in their liquor cabinet or throw out all their drugs because, all right, that's it, I'm done, and they just purge themselves of everything. Uh, so a- after he purges himself of his sister and, and asks her, you know, she storms out, and he purges himself of the porn which and the computer, which he associates with his addiction, the next day he has this passionate moment with, the girl that he actually likes, uh, uh, or actually has feelings beyond, uh, he likes her for reasons that have to do other than sex. And so this is like big turning point moment here. Now that little thing where he's snorting the Coke, um, I love how we don't do the Scorsese thing there from Goodfellas where Leota snorts the coke, you have that huge reaction shot, and it's really dramatic, and I think the camera haywires in. You know, McQueen just, we just see him snort it real quick. It's on screen for about a second, and that's it. And otherwise, it's it's not a big thing. Which is the way it happens in real life. Well, this is a a view outside that window that maybe 
they're not making a big deal of it. Obviously, we're supposed to be looking at the characters, but the camera's kind of relishing that view. This is what I was talking about before. Like, this is a very uh, passionate uh, sex scene here, or love scene, and very convincing, you know. And Fassbender's, you know, the, both performances here are great. Fassbender's is especially because he's, he's body language and uh, the way he is, and look at his hand creeping up her body. I mean, the way he's moving uh, amorously here is, um, you can tell different from the way he was in earlier sex scenes. Um, at this point in the story, this character has felt that he has purged himself of the things that were his sickness, the, the porn, uh, the webcam stuff, uh, swearing off prostitutes probably, kicking the incestuous sister out. And now he can be free to have a middle-of-the-day tryst with this woman that he's falling for, falling for in a emotional way. And then we're and we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, McQueen does all kinds of clever stuff. Um, I mean, this has been a long take for a while now, but oh, uh, I mean, just just um, clever clever stuff that in film school or or the normal way movies are made, um, they would tell you, oh, don't do that. You can't do that. That's a waste of time. Uh, like in the singing scene with Carrie Mulligan singing New York, New York, um, the production notes state that the way he shot that was um, he had three cameras rolling all at once, uh, one for each of the characters. Or it, what it probably was was there was a two-shot on David and Brandon and then a one one camera for Fassbender's close-up, one camera for Mulligan's close-up is probably what it was. And he's shooting in 35 again, so he's got three, I mean, it's expensive stuff. He's got three film cameras going at once, and she does the performance, and, and they shoot it all in real time. So you get the reactions uh, in real time, and the reason, part of the reason he did that, they said was, uh, or the production note said, was because um, Fassbender and um, presumably um, James Badge Dale, who plays David, had not seen Mulligan perform that. And so what we were looking at was the first time they saw her sing the song because she's really, obviously she's really singing it. People call it acapella too. It's, I mean, it's not acapella. I think she has a little, there's a piano accompaniment there. But anyway, um, so he got, he got their initial reactions to seeing her perform it. Uh, and obviously, you know, they would, they would be, doing the method thing, uh, probably. I mean, they're in character, shooting the scene, uh, live, basically. And obviously, the, the editing cuts it together later. Um, editor on the film was uh, Joe Walker. So, that I mean, that's an example of um, just kind of a clever thing. I mean, that, I mean, that's not something people haven't done in the past or things like that, but... You know, for a scene like that and a real location, it's it's a complicated shoot. You you don't want to spend any more time there than you need. You got three of your 
uh, main actors in the movie on set. You don't want to be dicking around. Um, you know, it's hard. It's hard. The daily grind of making a, a movie, even an independent like this, is 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 a bitch. It's more of a bitch with independence, probably. Uh, and he, still, McQueen took you know took a little bit of a chance there, did it differently, and got uh, what I thought was a, a pretty cool scene. So I like that about him. You know, he does does that thing, uh, does things like that a little bit, just a little bit differently. You know, not not wildly different, but he thought to do that, like. Uh, the way I've been educated, uh, I wouldn't think to do that. I would be thinking, um, shoot your masters, shoot your coverage, make sure you, you know, make sure you've got a, enough takes to, to, to cut it together a couple different ways if you need to, you know, cover your ass, um, But I like, I like, I really like a sensibility like McQueen's where he just says, well, you know, let's, let's shoot it live. Like, let's shoot it like a home movie with three cameras and we'll, and, and you, and don't let them see you sing until we're on set. I mean, that's, that's cool stuff there. Anyway, uh, what we have here is, a, a, you know, again, not the traditional three act structure, but major plot point, right? He couldn't get it up. And so um, she says, do you, and, and here's the callback to the, uh, uh, to the sex in the window scene with uh, when he was going to the date with Marianne. So she says, do you want me to leave? She leaves. He um, then uh, is very depressed, stays there, and um, is able to summon a hooker to um, get this... Um, relief to to um uh, release the stress of um the um what just happened the embarrassment of what just happened to him and of course he can get it up for the hooker that's part of his illness and this will be the first drink so to speak the first sip on this bender that he will go on which will be um, part of the movie's climax uh I, I wasn't making, I wasn't trying to make a bad pun there or a bad joke with climax. I, just, <laughs> I was more, I was, see, I was more concerned there that someone would think I was trying to make a bad pun than, uh, at least I'm not one of those goofballs who would actually make the pun and be like, you know, aren't I clever? Um, The hooker, uh, the actress playing the hooker there, uh, obviously she had to do the scene naked or topless. That's a nice shot there, huh? Sunset. So he spent all day there. He didn't go back to work. Now obviously he's doing the scene, um, or she's doing the scene naked or topless, that, uh, that uh, naked and topless. <laughs> naked is topless. Um, that actress who's playing the hooker right and so uh, well for I, she didn't have very many lines but she I, I thought you know the faces she was making in the mirror at the end there were, were uh, pretty cool um, pretty almost like she knew something or sensed something or maybe she maybe this is a repeat client um, which is plausible right 
but it just reminds me that, um, you know, it used to be back in the days of Betty Page that um, nude modeling and um, topless modeling was, um, you know, you couldn't even say those words uh, in public. And now there's a whole um, population of actors and actresses who make their living with body doubling and doing topless scenes and little stuff like that actress did there. And um, not only is it, uh, I'm saying this because I know someone who does this, and not only is it a perfectly legitimate, respectable uh, line of work, you know, it's like people who are career extras in movies, you know, um, Ricky Gervais had that sitcom, right? Extras. Uh, not only is it a perfectly legitimate line of work, but it's not something that you can do only if you have a, a killer body, right? It's something that you actually have to be able to, you know, hit a mark and and recite a couple lines like she did there. You know, you have to be able to have some good talent too. So this is like the first time he banishes her. She, she, you know, she comes back. It has, there has to be a coming back because, uh, well, I think for dramatic purposes, um, if he banishes her, her or once and, that, and she comes back and he, he hugs her when she comes back just now, uh, when she first sits on the couch with him, this is the scene I was talking about before. And, um, so if she comes back this second time, it means that he's justified in assuming that if he banishes her again, she, she'll come back again or she won't do anything drastic. And part of the tragedy of the movie's conclusion is that um, she, she rather does do, do something drastic. You see how we, uh, McQueen has got them. There's a quarter profile here on, on Fazbender, but um, sort of a, a good profile on mulligan um and now he's back to the camera again one of the hints that i think maybe something happened with them in childhood as opposed to later in life is that i don't know if you want to call it a hint but there's a sort of an old cartoon on the television as they're having this conversation they're on the couch the television's there has this way of infantilizing them both or casting a shadow of um, childhood uh, literally behind what they're saying, or behind them. Now they're both in full profile. The impression I get from some of the lines that Mulligan has here is, is that... Um, Well, she says, I'll never see you again. Is that, the, is that they're the only family each other has? We heard in his date with Marianne that he came from Ireland, came to the States. I mean, perhaps they were orphans or foster kids or something. And um, But, but the, uh, I, you know, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't surprise me if they were, you know, if she does come to him when she has nowhere else to go, that, you know, maybe they're the only family they, they have. Is each other. And so, really harsh uh, dialogue here. He accuses her of being a parasite. She 
insists, I don't think she's trying to guilt trip him. She insists that we're family, we're supposed to look out for each other. I'm your sister. And um, he just accuses her of being a parasitic, of being a burden on him. And um, this is, a lot of this is um, because they, you know, he embraces her when she first sits down, but then she, she kind of sets him off and it's sort of like you you know this a lot of this is frustration from what happened with Marianne not not that he couldn't he couldn't get it up um but but that he couldn't well you know it, it, it's about sex and it isn't about sex right he couldn't perform with the person that he actually cares about when they walked into that bar where sissy was performing they had that the Coltrane version of my favorite things, the John Coltrane version of my, of my favorite things. And, uh, that would be a good, that, that would have been good to play, uh, during the scene where he can't get it up. <laughs> I don't know why I think that's why just putting funny music under sort of, uh, um, or putting, uh, melancholy or jovial music or funny music underneath uh, or scoring it to um, scenes in which a guy can't get it up, you know. <laughs> like the theme from Annie. If <laughs> I'm writing Viagra commercials here. Again, playing with time here, this is well into the bender that hasn't actually started yet. The bender kind of starts slow with that first hooker after the impotence, uh, impotence incident. And uh, I, I say he's playing with time because we see him in that again in that jogging suit that he wore, that jogging outfit that he wore when he was trying to blow off steam. And you notice there he had a the scar on his cheek. And we say, well, where did that where did that cut on the cheek come from? And now we cut to the the bar scene where he comes onto that women that woman. And the establishing shot there of him at the bar, of course, we see him without the scar on his cheek. Um, so the question we just had will be answered uh, in that sequence. But then, as you just saw, we cut here, moving forward in time again to after that incident, and he'll have the cut on his cheek here. Cutting backward in time, no cut on the cheek. So this is so this this playing with time isn't made a big deal of, and it and it's not jarring at all. Um, it's not for me. Um, it, it, it's uh, and I think we have that um, that um, sort of rumbling kind of tense music underneath that that ties it together. Now, talk about stuff you can only get away with if you look like Michael Fassbender. Um, what he's saying to the woman is, you know, enough to get you cracked in the face, um, you know, <laughs> slapped with a hand that has acrylic nails on it. But then he he, he literally um, uh, fingers her at the bar. 
Heavens to Betsy. So we have an idea of why he's making the face he's making there as he walks down that street with a cut on his cheek because it's forward in time. Um, but we don't know fully what it is yet because the cross-cutting hasn't brought us to that point yet. Why, uh, people ask um, reasonable questions, you know, why do this? Um, well, I, th I think, you know, it's it's not for sake of doing it uh, here. I think that the main purpose is that um, uh, I've been calling it a bender, um, this bender that he's on. Um, you know, when you hear people talk about benders or think about benders, it's all a blur. They say, you know, um, hey, did you did that guy punch you before you went to the nightclub or after? I don't remember. It's all a blur. You know, it's like when they're telling the cops the next day. I don't remember. Um, I think that's exactly why we're getting this out of sequence. I think that's exactly why we're... Um, I said it wasn't jarring. It's, in a way, it's meant to be jarring. It's meant to be like, whoa, what's going on? What's happening first? Or You know, um, he tries to sneak in the nightclub casually by talking on his phone. It's probably because he's wearing sweats, I bet. Now, what he tells this guy he was telling the guy's girlfriend, what he tells the guy he was saying is actually, it actually ups the ante from what he was actually saying. I mean, what he was saying was plenty filthy. Um, but he tells the guy that he was saying stuff that was way beyond what he was even saying, you know. He's, uh, what is he, he's, I, you heard, I, oh, and that's just, That's just not classy. <laughs> so that kind of acting out is... Uh... I remembered this as, um, the first time I saw it, uh, as being a worse beating than it, than it was. The guy just hit him... I think three times he hit him in the stomach, hit him in the face, and then kicked him when he was on the ground a couple times. Um, I remembered it being more of a vicious, but well, it is vicious, you know, any kind of beating. Okay, so the gay stuff. Um, I haven't, I haven't even talked about the NC-17 rating, but it's related to the gay stuff. Let me first say that, um, uh, blogger that I like named Amanda Marcotte. Um, she writes about feminism and a lot of cool topics. Uh, writing about this movie, she said that it was sort of, there was a pure, a lot of people said that there was kind of a puritanism to the movie's ethos maybe, or the movie's take on these subjects. And uh, I think that's true in a way, but um, she mentioned that you know, that this is kind of a bender, I think, and I think she mentioned that the rock bottom for this character is um, gay sex, that um, when he hits uh, quote-unquote rock bottom, it's this scene here where he has uh, the gay 
encounter. I don't agree. Uh, I see where she's coming from, um, but I just, A, you know, McQueen, again, with Morgan, uh, Abby Morgan wrote this movie. I do not think that is um, what they're trying to, I don't think that's what they're doing there. I don't think uh, they're doing a thing where it's like, um, now here's a nice use of a reflection, the distorted uh, sort of funhouse mirror thing. Um, well, anyway, I, I don't I don't think they're barking up that tree. I don't think they're saying, and it was so bad for him that night that he let a gay guy blow him. That's how bad it was. I think, first of all, well, he, he doesn't get into that one club, so the gay club across the street he, he's able to get into. But, uh, you know, I think, first of all, <laughs> he, he's a sex addict. And I, I think the opinion that, that the gay sex was being presented as, as his bottom, and he has sex after the gay sex, right? He goes to what we're seeing here, these, these other hookers, and has more sex. So it's not like that was the, the final... Um, uh, final act of depravity um, but that gay that gay sex that I think in order to think that you what uh, Marcotte thinks you you have to start from a a point of view that this is a heterosexual character fundamentally and um, you know in that scene he doesn't I mean, he pushes the gay, when he's making out with the guy, he pushes the guy's head down to blow him. I mean, it's pretty, uh, I mean, um, I don't think just being at rock bottom would compel even a sex addict to, um, well, it's not, she's not claiming that he's changing his sexual orientation. She's just claiming that um, the gay sex is being depicted as his bottom, but... Um, you know, there are people who are bisexual um, who 95% of the time they enjoy sex with uh, women and, you know, maybe, it, you hate to put a number on it, you know, 5% of the time they enjoy with men or prefer uh, to have sex with a man. But there are people who, uh, yeah, most of the time I'm dating uh, this gender, but the rest of the time I, I might, you know, once or twice date this gender and, you know, I don't feel... Uh, and people even say, you know, I, I don't feel um, like I have to, uh, I'm attracted to both, uh, but uh, I just find myself um, going for men more or going for women more. Um, it's called being bisexual. So um, entirely, <laughs> it's entirely realistic and plausible to me that Brandon is, is that kind of bisexual who just... Um, swings one way so to speak a certain percentage of the time but uh, once in a while he'll swing this way and um now it, it because he didn't get into that nightclub it, i guess you could argue that well um that gay club was like a last resort but again we're in manhattan there's all kinds of play i mean you don't you don't have to go to a gay club as a last resort any more than you have to go to any other place as a last there 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 are all kinds of resorts <laughs> uh it's a great look on his face there a little bit of a william defoe kind of willem defoe kind of look 
that's what that's what we mean like no pleasure just um it's it's uh self-flagellation once again so that whole the whole bender sequence is just a great um instance of uh, messing with time in a way that helps make the story cohere more make it more coherent not less the the going sort of like godfather 2 you're going back and forth in time and and it's rather than being disorienting and it it uh, or rather than taking you out of it it out of the story it, it makes things sort of more coherent it's another good fake out um in the language of uh, cinema you know um the train stalling here uh and then there'll be another fake out when he goes uh curb uh goes topside uh and he's by a curb and he sees an ambulance near his building and of course sissy isn't picking up the phone so he thinks that she's already dead i mean she'll look dead when he'll get to her but he you know because of the way movies work we're, we're thinking what he's thinking you know she's already dead and so I, I don't know. I, in Hunger, there's a couple of those. Hunger's based on a true story, but there's a couple of those little fake outs that he does too. Yeah, I see the police there, and um, he thinks it might be relate. You know, did she jump off a building or something? I mean, you don't know what to think when stuff like that happens. And um, see the ambulance back there. Are they someone had jumped in front of the train is what it was but um i didn't actually put that together um the first time i saw i thought something had just gone on somewhere i didn't get that someone had jumped in front of the train So this is, again, the movie does the bookend thing. This is a recapitulation of uh, a little bit of the running. He's in the same outfit, basically, of the tracking shot of him jogging. Um, the night Sissy slept with David. And um, now that she's harmed herself, he's running in the same way back to her. This time, because he's worried about her, not because he's upset with her. really is a character um, pulled between two identities. Um, I will talk about the NC-17 thing. It's related to the gay sex thing only because um, there's a good movie about, a good documentary about um, the way the MPAA ratings board rates movies. It's called This Film Is Not Yet Rated. It's by a great, great director named Kirby Dick. And um, it's on Netflix. And it's surprisingly right-wing and absurd the way they rate movies one of the best documentaries i've seen in years actually uh it's a few years old now and um this is they really milk the suspense here as he's going up to his apartment it's great um but if there's a sex scene you're more likely to get a an r or or you know a, a worse rating um but if or worse in the sense of a more restrictive rating um but if there's a gay sex scene, one of the things the documentary points out is that is there's a gay if there's a gay sex scene, um, you're way more likely to get NC-17. And so, you know, I think the the penis shots of Fazbender at the beginning probably 
got this, the NC-17, for sure. But I think the gay sex, they almost cer- if you take the penis shots out, they almost certainly would have done it because of the gay sex. And you really don't see gay sex. They don't have a real system for doing it. They just, I mean, it's just a group of everyday people who are just kind of idiots who um, make their best guess. So, but the NC-17 is uh, consistent with other movies that have gotten NC-17, but, um, you know, the whole rating system is fucked. And, uh, you know, the NC-17 essentially met as well as this movie did critically, especially, and at festivals, um, the NC-17 essentially made it very difficult for more people to see this movie. And that really, really sucks. Especially when you got a great talent like McQueen and Fassbender, who was not nominated for this. It's just crazy. He's He's really intense here. I mean, yelling at her. Someone mentioned to me that they thought the blood as far as movie blood goes that that movie blood was sort of n- not the best movie blood they'd ever seen um i think it is uh, pretty good i, I mean it, uh, real blood is going to stain clothes easy easily and um has a certain consistency to it that i think i saw there but uh, aside from that um, they, and there you see the payoff on the scratches. So she's, she was a cutter, you know, and why would someone be a cutter and what kind of people cut themselves and leaves the movie leaves all these questions. Um, yeah, anyway, I, I feel like, um, oh, that shot of his hand just touching it is kind of, kind of heartwarming in a way. But anyway, on, on the on the movie Blood, uh, someone said that it it was unrealistic that scene where she cuts it because it was just way more blood than there would be if someone cuts their wrists. Um, and I told it, this person, I didn't tell her this, but she obviously either knew nothing about the medical reality of someone cutting their wrists, or um, or had never seen. Um, someone cut badly and I mean if, if someone gets a bad wound uh, it's uh, it's what people always say they're always shocked at the amount of blood that is spilt um, it can be quite staggering it just it looks like gallons sometimes so that that the amount of blood in that scene was pretty consistent with the way people bleed I think I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but I've bled a lot. (laughs) So, in terms of plot structure, he's not any different than he was at the beginning in the sense that he doesn't have anything. I mean, it seems like he might have a better relationship or will be able to build a better relationship with Sissy because of what happened. But at the end of the movie, he doesn't... He he has the same problem, essentially. 
the same set of problems, and he's in the same predicament. He hasn't he hasn't really slayed any dragons. Um, and in fact, uh, with this coda, the movie ends in exactly the same place it began. Uh, with the, this shot on the uh, subway car. But in t- the, the plot structure basically is that he has this routine. Um, he's, he's being torn between the two identities of the normal guy and the raging sex addict. And um, his daily and nightly routine um, encompasses all of that. And he's got a good routine going. His sister shows up and he's got a whole crazy, weird history with her. And so she's the monkey wrench that gets thrown into her into his routine. And uh, see see the um the married woman here, she's sort of dolled up in a different way. And and she's looking at him more flirtatiously than she was before. She's sort of and his expression is different too. He's he's more disturbed than you know. He's he's disturbed by himself now. But this is what I mean by he's the same. Like he he he's the same guy who can't help doing what he's about to to do. Um. But he's just, maybe he's a guy who's more disgusted by himself than he was before. It's not a very uplifting uh, arc for a character to have, but it arguably is one. And of course the movie ends with his visage as it began. But yeah, so, so in terms of the story... And one of the reasons I think the screenplay is so cool is because, on the one hand, it, it it's not, but on the other hand, it is a a typical structure in the sense that you have this normalcy of his routine. The monkey wrench of his sister gets thrown into that routine, and, and the routine is not a healthy one. The routine is actually quite a destabilizing one. It, but most of the routine, or, or you know, a good part of the routine, is his addiction, and it's so it's destabilizing. Uh, his sister is the monkey wrench that gets thrown into that. So that's the inciting incident, and um, bad stuff happens. <laughs> You know, the sister sleeps with the boss. Uh, the You know, he, he um, f- quarrels with the sister. He, um, uh, and then all of a sudden, um, you have this turning point where you think he might go straight, go clean. Um, when he, uh, you know, there's a ray of hope with Marianne. Uh, and she becomes the thing in the story that might pull him out of his um, dungeon of addiction or inspire him to uh, free himself. And it looks that way when he purges himself of all the porn and everything. Everything's going great with her. Can't get his dick hard. Uh, but he, of course, easily gets it hard for the uh, <laughs> for the, uh, the next hooker. Uh, and so... Y- y- talk about not being able to slay a dragon, right? It- 
So he goes on the bender, uh, uh, climaxes. I, I think um, again, no pun intended, but I think I think the climaxes is, is um, sort of the um, the height of the bender when he's with the threesome with the hookers. Um, or, but it's our. It, it could arguably be said when he, uh, when he realizes that Sissy isn't picking up the phone. But um, I think the real height of the the drama is just sort of the moment before that. So maybe he rushes. Well, when he rushes home, she's all caught up, takes her to the hospital or whatever. And that's it. It's a story in which he doesn't change. He just goes through bullshit and um, doesn't slay his dragon, doesn't defeat the demons, is in the same sort of routine and stasis that he was at the beginning uh, in in a fundamental way. Um, so it's an unlikely, uh, structure for a tragedy, but it is a a tragedy. You could say, I mean, depending on how you wanted to define your terms, you could say it's a traditional tragedy because he, um, he tries to slay the dragon and he's defeated, right? I mean, at the end, he was looking at that woman on the train in a different way than he was at the beginning, it was a way that he was, you know, he was troubled by what he was about to do. He, he realizes that he can't, not just that he didn't beat the dragon this time, but he can't slay the dragon. Um, he's, he's licked, so to speak. You know, you have a movie about uh, sex addiction. Uh, the, the puns are just going to be unavoidable. I'm really not doing them on purpose, but he is licked by, by this dragon that he can't slay, and he's just kind of resigned to it, so... Um, the hero loses, and uh, maybe it is a traditional structure. Maybe it is a traditional story. Um, but it's a good one. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.